Welcome to Breaking the Lathe. My name is Claire, and my guest today is Leslie Lee III from Struggle Session. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So today we're going to be talking about science fiction and how it's historically served as something of a touchstone for society's ideas about the future. Yeah, well, that's the idea, at least. At least that's what it was, where science fiction, when you look at back, I mean, from Frankenstein, uh, basically on, it was a look to the future about new technologies that we thought might actually exist in the real world about new ways of living that we thought were actually possible utopian ways dystopian ways you know all these different elements you know have created science fiction for us in the past but when you are watching the ninth star wars movie which is the most prominent you know science fiction uh, property we have now aside from the marvel universe which is even a worse example if i were picking one what like what kind of future are you actually seeing in star wars it's we we know when it came out in the 1970s it was actually set in the distant past it's not it's not futuristic it's not trying to be futuristic and even if it were futuristic 40 years ago like why hasn't our conception of what the future should be will look like might look like not changed in 40 50 years yeah like i i, I think that that's a good point because i definitely feel like that science fiction has felt kind of like it's always it's it's been very dystopian since basically I don't know, Philip K. Dick, I guess, would be kind of the example where I feel like the modern science fiction just mindset, I guess, sort of came into being. Yeah, he's definitely the father of modern science fiction. And like he like has no <laughs> real heirs or, or sons. Obviously, they're great science fiction writers before and since and other contemporaries. But I think like I don't think anyone else has really change the way we think about science fiction in a in as significant way that we can say all right here's a clean break here is you know before him and after him i think philip k dick kind of can i mean i'm sure pl plenty of people have plenty of discussions and arguments about this but i i think the main thing is like what the big sci-fi movie that everyone keeps telling me was so great from the past couple of years is based on the Philip K. Dick book, and it's the sequel to Blade Runner 2049. Of course, the original Blade Runner came out in 1982, the year I was born. So, like, that, like, what's new? What's what, what's really new? What's popping? <laughs> you know, and it's if it's still Philip K. Dick, I think that rep kind of represents a problem with how with with our science fiction. Uh, is uh, now currently under, you know, the rule of these corporations that, you know, are in control of basically all the creative money that there is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really great point that it definitely does feel like there's been something of a stagnation because I feel like anything that's kind of trying to break from that sort of tradition of Philip K. Dick, like it's not actually trying to do any kind of like future saying like you either get these kind of you know you either get these uh dystopian science fiction novels or you get these science fiction novels stuff like the martian where it's not really 
dystopian, but it's also not really imagining any kind of. It's not really futuristic in any, in any significant yeah. way. I, I I do want to be clear. Like, there's of course you know small uh, science fiction writers you know are doing very very interesting stuff. But I'm speaking broadly, like how does science fiction interact with the broad broader you know culture and consciousness? And and for that, you do have to kind of look at you know look at movie, look at the popular sci-fi what we consider popular science fiction movies and books and video games and so and the vast majority of it is based on is a copy of a copy of a copy of something that George Lucas saw you know when he was 7 years old and i think that's just like a a real limit <laughs> like a real problem um with how with popular science fiction of course there's very interesting stuff that's come out i, I love science fiction but as far as science fiction as a cultural force, I, I don't know if it still is if it's one that really points to us towards the future. At least uh, we're not if if it is, we're not. Uh, no one's really paying attention. Yeah, like I guess because there obviously are you know some really good science fiction writers. I think that do kind of break from that dystopian vision. Stuff like Kim Stan Kim Stanley Robinson, stuff like Ursula Le Guin, or even like you know. Oh, Cameron Hurley is a really good one. A, a young writer that I really really love, and she has you know com great stuff. But like I'm, it just like that's okay. I'm never going to like most people aren't going to know who Cameron Hurley is unless they're hardcore science fiction fans, and and so it doesn't her vision of the future as interesting as it is is not really gonna change our collective vision of the future sadly or even present yeah. one a option for us yeah because like these things like i can't imagine any of this stuff really getting like optioned into movies or things like that like that's not really what's and honestly like one thing that i find really interesting about the way it has shifted is that it's kind of shifted into this idea of it being like young adult fiction or whatever like the young adult like sci-fi dystopian novel or stuff like that like a lot of these things it's not really gaining anything from being young adult. It's just trying to kind of, I guess, put like a demographic spin or like a specific spin to it to like, you know, make it more marketable. But it's still kind of just repackaging a lot of like these same old science fiction tropes. Yeah, yeah. Most dangerous game that is, you know, the Hunger uh, Games in a lot of ways. We, and it's still like these same ideas. And this is not, I actually think the YA dystopian novels in general kind of had some good politics maybe for the time could have been like there was this idea of at least in stuff like the hunger games and i mean maybe divergent there was this sort of sense like oh there's a underclass that's being oppressed and the thing that has to be done is the underclass needs to rise up and take down the oppressors i thought that that was a generally good thing but it didn't really feel like it was trying to say anything about the future of humanity that's more like how we need to deal with the problems that we have like right in the moment right now and there's no real i i talk about um i wrote an article recently about the video game cyberpunk which is and of course cyberpunk had a lot of you know political critiques of late capitalism and we basically ignored all those and we're still just repackaging cyberpunk stuff we the new cyberpunk game ha still has the same politics and critiques that existed from like the cyberpunk 
tabletop RPG from 1980 because it's based off of that. And at, at this point, that's no longer futuristic. That's retro futuristic. No one thinks that the world is going to look like Blade Runner or Akira in, in the near future any, anytime soon. We don't expect our companies to ever make any uh, cool techno technologies like as cool as like uh, Replicant or Cyberpunk bike you know that's just not a future that's uh, uh when we look at cyberpunk stuff now and it's really popular what we're doing is kind of having uh nostalgia for a time when we did believe that human humanity would be taking steps forward that society would be taking steps forward forward but um the number one as you mentioned a couple of times the number one thing that has dominated our our you know sci-fi imagination for you know the past couple of decades is like the post-apocalyptic you know future where just there is no more humanity and that's all the zombies that's where all the zombie stuff comes in which is still you know pretty uh popular and important to us and that you know took off in the post 9 11 era and it's, it's kind of still going today and that's the future that's no future yeah and I mean, this is kind of the thesis of capitalist realism by Mark Fisher, right? Yes, basically. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm still, I'm stealing uh, liberally uh, from Mark Fisher <laughs> uh, here. He mentioned uh, he he gave his example was music, where if you could you take a song now, uh, beam it back twenty years, show it to a fan of music, and like actually blow their mind, like a popular song, you know, not a indep uh, not a, uh, independent artist, but like actual song that you would hear on the radio if you played it for the average person, like would they be surprised? Uh, and I don't think that would be true for music, and I definitely don't, and I even don't think it would be true for something like video games. Like I, I think if you took Cyberpunk 2077, this huge game that's supposed to be the best of the best, and you showed actually showed it to a fan 20 years ago like the most surprising thing i think to them would be like oh why is the dude from the matrix in the video game like like why is keanu still like uh, like so, so popular like he like that we forget that the matrix was like already his what's first or second comeback and he's yeah. still like our guy that's that's a little strange not that i'm saying get rid of keanu but there's no new keanu's and he's been like from Johnny Mnemonic, you know, in what, 1997 to all these years later, he's starring in a video game that's basically Johnny Mnemonic. Like what about that could possibly be considered futuristic? Yeah, no, like, I mean, did you see the tweet that William Gibson did back when Cyberpunk was announced where he basically said that he thought it would be GTA with a new coat of paint? Yeah, and it turned out that's exactly, exactly <laughs> true. I, I I was a, I actually wanted to believe in Cyberpunk. I wanted to believe in the game. I'm sure most people know it was a it was a technical disaster. I was criticizing it just on the the limitations of the aesthetic uh, of Cyberpunk because we this was you know this is like a nostalgia thing now looking at Cyberpunk I th think a lot of people just because it's set in the future doesn't mean it's futuristic is uh, what I was trying to get across to people well yeah honestly the th the piece of media that I can think of that honestly kind of break like toys with the same ideas that cyberpunk does like cyberpunk as a genre as it was like originally kind of presented by like you know william gibson and neuromancer and stuff uh, or you know i mean uh snow crash by neil stevenson 
uh, would honestly be like Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I was going to mention there's kind of like there is definitely like the bizarro kind of futurism that you that you see a very cynical i think it's very 90s too i also think we kind of we've kind of let go of that mate but i hadn't really i hadn't really thought about that but that was like uh my theory was that you know kind of the vision of the future kind of ended right around the millennium so that kind of still would count in there but i hadn't really considered uh consider infinite Jess, but of course it is a technically science uh fiction uh book controversial for other reasons and not i well i, I guess it's important to say that mostly people just talk about the fact that men like it uh allegedly and are annoying about it like so it doesn't even exist we don't even think of it as like a book really or a story it's just like yeah a cultural war totem uh that we trot out every so often I honestly can't think of very many people other than me who've read it. Like I've met like one person who's read it in my life. Yeah, I read I've read the Rick- Wikipedia. It sounded fascinating, but I don't think no. I ever read the book. No, it, it's honestly honestly I think it gets a bad rap. I do think it's actually a really good book. Like because it does kind of play with a lot of those kind of sci- uh cyberpunky ideas where I don't know, I I do think it is a pretty accurate depiction of kind of where the future went from that i I feel like it was the first book written by like a shit poster like one of the main characters is essentially the 90s equivalent of a podcaster in that she like runs this like independent radio show that's like listened to by prep school dropouts uh i don't know it's honestly a fascinating book just because of like how close to accurate it gets everywhere and like it does definitely have like things about it that aren't great but I do think it's, I, I think it gets bad rap. I do think it's actually a really good book in terms of, yeah, the science fiction. I would, I like, I, I feel like I was so negative about sci-fi early. I do want, I love science fiction. I, I love the worlds it creates. It's just that when I think of like a genuine future that's pointing towards that isn't kind of a remix of something that already came before, I, I, I think about like what, some of my favorite sci-fi recently has been and some of the tropes that you see in modern sci-fi they're really popular and this is the trope that's in the mass effect series it's in um the new picard uh series not even a trope it's basically the plot um it's in the revelation space series which i'm currently getting through which i love it's also the plot of the three body problem and it's this it's this idea oh it's also the plot of blind sight like these are all fairly popular uh science fiction properties that i you know some of them have been very uh, popular in the mainstream but basically in all of these the vision of the future is this um, basically, if humanity is able, ever able to make peace with one another, cross, uh, crush our conflicts, survive co- climate change, and go out into space and start exploring the sto- stars, what will happen is, as is want to, and is very Lovecraftian in a sense, is that there will be entities out in space and they will observe us and then destroy us <laughs> and and the and to have that be the basic plot of all these you know big pro- properties big and small and have that be kind of a through line is very interesting to me because it says like even if we accept 
all these things that we take for granted in Star Wars or Star Trek, there still is no future we can actually ima imagine for us. We don't get to, humanity doesn't get to live out till Dune when we become god emperors who master time and space. No, no, no. We are going to be destroyed before that just because we don't deserve uh, to escape this current uh, level of existence that we're at. Yeah, no, that, that that's a good point because, like, yeah, no, like the book I'm currently reading is *Children of Time* by Adrian Tchaikovsky, and also very much kind of a you know doomed humanity <laughs> situation. Well, yeah, and 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 it's like the our favorite sci-fi writers, you know, for the most part, weren't even writing about the future; they were writing about right now like octavia butler you know ursula Le Guin. they were writing about you know contemporary issues using imaginative fiction that's certainly a valid you know purpose of science fiction i mean i, I absolutely love it it's what i try to do when i try to write science fiction but as far as ever us actually envisioning a, a a new way of living for humanity there's there's some interest very interesting takes on it but they're just not nearly they just don't filter into our consciousness. We don't really, when we think of sci-fi, we think of like having war in space, you know, uh, in, in a lot of respects. And I just think, uh, I, I wish, you know, my, and, and you mentioned earlier, like the YA problem, man. Uh, this is an issue for anyone who tries to follow sci-fi writers on Twitter knows that, you know, the vast majority of the modern ones have very, has have a very limited political vision and i think it uh, perhaps limits their creative vision their idea of a great future for humanity is a great future where the democrats are always elected and i just think that like if you start from you know obviously people of all political stripes can write interesting stories but i don't know if you can really look to the future if you're you can really cr uh, think of the type of future that humanity needs because if your politics are such that you think that the status quo is mostly fine you're probably not going to imagine this sort of future that we need you know what i'm saying yeah so like and are you like saying i guess that you think that uh YA fiction is kind of politically hamstrung because of like the way it's trying to market itself because like i'd actually i i agree with that I, I well i don't know i don't read enough YA to know but if YA is anything like movies or or like yeah. the, the, the most popular type of science fiction like i i or anything by disney then yes i think that would definitely apply because yeah like i don't really read much YA myself like i can't think of the last thing i've read that qualifies as YA but i do definitely think that because you know, it's interesting, like, with YA science fiction, because I think that if you read, like, a lot of, like, classic science fiction, I think that it's dealing with kind of characters that all are also similarly aged, right? Like, it's not like they're all, all these, like, classic science fiction books are writing about, you know, like, 40-year-olds. There are plenty of, like, classic science fiction books that are, like, you know, talking about characters that are in, like, the early 20s. So I... I don't know, like, I'm just, like, curious about, like, why YA fiction in itself has, like, kind of become a thing. I guess I just don't really get it. Yeah, I, I don't really get it. I know people who are into YA who write YA. It, I, it's an aesthetic choice, but I do think it's, like, market force forces have kind of pushed this. I remember, like, uh, some a classmate talking about how she wanted to write this book about, um, you know, these very weighty topics, and then, like, just, and it sounded like, you know, a 
real like literary novel that she wanted to write but then just at the end she said and it's going to be a ya fiction i was like wait uh, wait why like you are writing about like adult issues adult topics i think it was like has something to do with like genocide and like of course you can write those books for children but like the way she described it did not was not from any sort of that sort of perspective you know it was really just like like it has to be it, it felt like she wanted it to be YA because that's you know most she reads all, all her friends are reading YA she all her friends who's are writers are writing YA even if they're dealing with you know a lot of heavier issues the marketing pushes them towards uh being YA because like I don't know I mean if you look at a lot of like classic science I mean I guess sort of the example that immediately springs to mind of you know a character that would you know technically fall within like the age range of the protagonist within YA that I could think of that I wouldn't call YA would be you know like Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler like it's about a teenager oh, yes. but and I wouldn't call that I wouldn't call that YA at all yeah and like you I mean a lot of people discover Octavia Butler when they are you know why in like middle school uh and uh early in high school so it's it's, it's very like it's a category that just has gotten so big for, because I think of market forces. I think if you just, if you, like, there's other parables of the sower out there that are labeled as YA that might be going overlooked, you know, because they're, you know, marketed as YA, you know, just there's, it really is just about, you know, filtering everything into these marketing categories. And it's not, it's, you know, it's the same thing ha happens with movies where every movie has to be PG-13. You know, it's, it's happening to kind of all of our stuff <laughs> now, except maybe video games. I think video games can still be kind of sexier and violent and still be mainstream, but you can't really do that if, uh, if it's going to be like a movie, like they don't want to make already uh, blockbuster movies anymore. I think part of that with like video games is because I feel like video games with kids still kind of has that filter of the parent needs to like buy it for them. Yeah, the parent has to buy it for them and the parent doesn't fucking care what they're doing either. Yeah, whereas with books, because there's now this classification of young adult novels or whatever, the parent's not going to buy their kid an adult book. They're going to, you know, buy the young adult novel that's marketed toward them and they're not really gonna take the time to you know know what's good or what's not because i think part of this is the fact that books and literature aren't really kind of the coin of the cultural realm anymore or whatever it's something where now if you read books you're kind of like almost part of this subculture right around that exists around oh reading. yeah yeah like you're you're into books like you're into vinyl <laughs> yeah exactly no it's like hipster subculture around books now it seems like which i i find kind of fascinating because i don't know i i read i love to read i love science fiction stuff like that but it definitely feels that way i mean i challenge you to find a bookstore that doesn't kind of have that hipster record store vibe to it. <laughs> well now that we don't have them anymore i guess they have to replace them but yeah it definitely does feel like there's kind of this confluence of market forces and yeah, it's sort of part of that thesis of capitalist realism that because capitalism and the capitalist mode of production has become the heir, so to speak, there's no longer this idea of the future and it's all this kind of eternal present that kind of began, I guess, sort of back in like the 80s or whenever. And it's just man it's manifesting in science fiction as just this constant return to that present that was established like I, I just 
Yeah, I I just opened up Twitter right now, and both Doctor Strange and Luke Skywalker are trending because there's a rumor that on the uh, uh, allegedly science fiction series WandaVision, uh, Doctor Strange might show up again. And these are characters older than your grandparents, you know? And, like, what what about this? And these, I mean, these are characters older than your grandparents. Luke's, this is Luke's, uh, a CGI Luke Skywalker that we're talking about here. We're so desperate to see him again. We're We'll we'll take a hologram. Remember when people made fun of the Tupac hologram, and now, like I think we are going to be having hologram concerts, uh, big time, uh, in the future. It's just that rehashing these old characters and so these old stories, and like we're supposed to be excited, not because we're getting something, too, but specifically because we're getting something old. Um, Elizabeth Olsen is teasing this surprise because it's going to be a character that we've already seen in five or six movies, you know? Like, and what about this is futuristic? Nothing. What about this is science? I, I guess it is still technically science fiction, but of course, but absolutely nothing to do with the future or even the real world, too, as well. So it doesn't even uh, have that going for it. Yeah, I think the best example I can think of of a science fiction book or property broadly that seems to be trying to talk about the future or political issues or culture, but it just says nothing is Ready Player One. Oh, <laughs> it's just this like total. Opinion. Yeah, it's it's so funny because if you actually like look at the parts that could be the beginning of some sort of postmodernist like science fiction like about po a post cyberpunk right like before you read the book obviously if you get the premise corporations have so saturated our lives that we basically live in a virtual world where we have to pretend uh to be like these cartoon characters from a hundred years ago you know maybe not the most unique and original idea but at least a start of something depending on uh, where you go and how explicit you get but instead it's just like a trip through nostalgia it's a book where a guy lists off all the things he remembers uh, from his childhood uh, for us and we enjoy the pleasure of uh, reading that I guess the movie is I found you know deeply unpleasant and in some ways distasteful when they included the like shining sequence along with you know, Pac-Man and all, and uh, Evangelion, all this other, you know, I guess it wasn't, was it Evangelion in it? What was the big, I know they had Godzilla, but I think they had, they had one Mecha, whichever the Mecha was, uh, just mixing all these things in a way that's completely meaningless, which is, of course, the exact same thing that the biggest video game in the world uh, Fortnite does with all these different properties and characters. And they say explicitly, uh, the the creators of Fortnite said explicitly like we want to be the place where you can find every property you love. Well, no, no IP. He actually said every IP you love, we want to live here on Fortnite. And I'm like, what? Why would anyone want that? Why would anyone think that's cool? I don't get it. It's just like uh, advertisement after advertisement and. And, and does absolutely nothing for me as a fan of a lot of these properties. I love Batman, but I don't know what the point is of have, playing with Batman with an AK-47 in Fortnite. That doesn't really do, touch on anything that spoke to me about Batman uh, as a child. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's entirely, like, just stripping all these things of, like, any kind of, like, historicity or any sort of cultural touchstone that they, like, might have. Like, all of a sudden, you know, who knows, in, like, ten years, maybe maybe Batman won't be a comic book hero anymore. Maybe he will be, you know, just a... I mean, I think Batman's a bit too big at this point for that history to be fully lost over, you know, ten years, but maybe in the future, you know, he'll just be this guy, <laughs> from this for- cool guy that we all like. Fortnite. Or just, or just yeah. a mascot. That's in anything and everything. Yeah. Like, I mean, remember I during the primaries, it was where, like, they were talking about getting, like, Joe Biden in Fortnite somehow. Oh, I did not. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. But, yeah, that would not yeah. have surprised maybe, me. Because, like, yeah, I think it was, like, right after Super Tuesday when, like, all the, like, Pete Buttigieg types were hopping on the... Uh, you know, decision-making meetings for Joe Biden's campaign, and they were like, "Oh, well, we need to sell Joe Biden to the kids, make him make them think he's cool." Uh, one of the ideas that they floated, they never actually tried doing this, I don't think, but I know one of the ideas that like got leaked from one of their meetings was, yeah, getting him in like Fortnite or something. It's like, who are you marketing Joe <laughs> Biden to? Like thirteen? Yeah, like, like they like, can't what? vote. But th- I I just looked up; they actually did make something. They made a uh. Like a a custom map with a no malarkey station there, Are a place we could vote. Me? Yeah. Oh my it's god, that's awful. Very, very weird. Very funny. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I guess maybe we can ask them to like give the stim uh, us a stimulus in Fortnite, Fortnite bucks. Maybe we'll get two K oh in that. Yeah, you'll get 2K Fortnite bucks along with, like, your second check for $600 or whatever it shakes out to next when it finally comes through. Oh, God, no, that is that is real grim. Because, like, the worst thing is, you know, I could see that happening. I could see something like that happening. I don't think it would be as ridiculous as, like, Fortnite bucks, but, like, Google Play Store dollars or whatever, you know. Uh, just Or Amazon. <laughs> Amazon gift yeah, cards. Yeah, honestly. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't been floated yet, you know, because, you know, they're all about public-private partnerships and trying to create this kind of, like, the the thought behind the stimulus is, right, that it's to stimulate economic activity, so I'm surprised there hasn't been anyone to be like, oh, well, you know, we give them, you know, $1,200 in uh, Amazon gift cards, then they'll spend it on Amazon, that's uh, gonna... That's going to stimulate the economy. I feel like we are currently, right now, making sci-fi about the future. We have seen the future right here. And oh, and it, it is murder. Yeah, the, the gift card, uh, the, well, the gift card stimulus will be one that we will see at some, at some point in the future. Oof, that's grim. That's real grim. I could, yeah, I, I don't want to wish that into being. <laughs> I was afraid they were going to push it out real quick. And make it into like you know a tax credit or something. Yeah, but we're instead we're getting like nothing. That that's a it's a perfect example. Like Joe Biden takes office and then nothing at all seems to change. The coronavirus still going horribly. No response. Um, no stimulus. Uh, like all the problems we had before, we still have. They're still just as bad. And and absolutely nothing uh, has happened. We're just stuck in this moment, and it's just not going anywhere and even what's supposed to be a big transformative change a new president coming in office a new congress a new senate like does it feel different to you you know does this feel like the future to you i i don't think so well like that's the thing is the future is just you know more of the same 
I mean, I remember when Joe Biden won the election, there were people out in the streets partying despite coronavirus. Like, <laughs> what are these people doing? Like, Joe Biden's done nothing and will do nothing. And it's because there's, like, not any actual force of power behind the government. Like, because all these multinational corporations and stuff like that, like, capital has outgrown the state. So the state can't really have much influence on it the only influence they have now is monetary policy because that still is the medium in which capital does business so is it any wonder then that when we are in a system where the only thing that was ostensibly democratic was the government and the government no longer has the capacity to influence our lives is it any wonder that there's no vision of the future i mean it's the mark fisher quote again it's easier to imagine the end of humanity than it is to imagine the end of capitalism and the point that I would add to that is, of course, you know, there's no future for humanity unless there is an end to capitalism. That's a very literal thing. We're not going to, I don't think we could, in, it, we can do anything to really stop climate change while ending capitalism is sad. It, no. There is to say, uh, so how can you even imagine a, a future in this state if you can't get past this thing? Like, all we know that any of the sci-fi stories that we've read where people are going to outer space and uh, exploring colonizing the galaxy and it's a uh, capitalist is and capitalism still exists is a lie we know that's not real we know star trek some guy is able to build like there's ton there's all these horrible wars that we somehow still survive and we're still able to push back climate change and create like full socialism within you know years and then we're able to go to the stars like does anybody see that as the trajectory for us really at this point does anyone think we're that lucky I, I don't think so i mean you'd need to break capitalism first and that's kind of the thing because i mean the moment capitalism really supplanted the state that was when we stopped going to the stars yeah <laughs> there are rocks up there what, what do you need with a bunch of rocks like that's not profitable yeah we, i mean we we have the space force which is just i i mean just the old joke about you know the aliens are going to come here and be shocked because all the weapons are pointed at our at each other you know all our space weapons but isn't that what i didn't even look people made so many jokes about space where i didn't even really look up what it was supposed to be it's supposed to be more like a war like war against like china in space right it's not actually like even it's not even like space marines who are going out there and killing xenos or whatever you know yeah no like the idea behind it i assumed was always you know basically just kind of treating you know orbit essentially as another uh, uh plane of warfare okay no, just another theater of war i guess uh, land yeah. air sea and space okay <laughs> yeah because i mean you you're up in space all of a sudden you can shoot down the the satellites Oh, God, though, imagine that would get really horrible for actually, you know, you get enough junk up in orbit, that stuff doesn't come down that quickly. Yeah, and and, uh, and does taking off the most <laughs> dangerous prospect. Yeah, and does anyone not imagine with uh, uh, if we get the space for force running that there won't be some sort of incident where we shoot down a satellite and it just happens to land on a small rural village wedding uh somewhere in some uh country uh we don't care about and we just talk and then we just talk it up and we we become the first you know humans uh to create to murder 
someone via space or I, I, I or have we already done that have we already done that i know we, we get we got the first robot murder in the united states um a couple of years ago during black lives mattered that that was actually like a sci-fi moment it, it was i remember people like documenting and talking about how it's in guinness that um this uh black man who 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 shot the police uh in response to you know the police shootings around black lives matter and the police instead of arresting him sent a bomb like a bomb squad robot with a bomb attached and blew him up just com- are you serious yeah. i didn't even oh you did this. it oh yeah it and it was the it was the first time in, at least in the u.s that a robot had you know, kill the person. I think, I think, or, or or have been used by the state to kill, kill the person. I forget what the official designation was, but yeah, this is, and they did this instead of trying to arrest him or wait him out because it was like a standoff situation. No, they sent a essentially a drone in, a robot drone into, and which is supposed to be used for bomb disposal. I I, I should say it's not a bomb robot. That, it's not supposed to bomb people. This was a innovation. They attached a bomb to something that was supposed to like save people from bombs. Like just a, and that is seems like a very uh, Philip K. Dickian uh, moment oh, yeah. that happened in our real world. Uh, and uh, yeah, people didn't talk about that element as much because uh, CNN was just covering oh the standoff and the shootout and the police who died. They were covering that, but they weren't really looking at the fact that this police department now is just doing like assassinations with robots. Dang no, I'm like looking up the story. Holy shit, that's fucking wild. How did I not hear about this? I am sure we've all seen like the cute drone dog that they keep trotting out the little ro- oh, the, God, that yeah. horrible thing which strangely enough has already been uh, speaking of uh, sci-fi that doesn't really point to the future sadly Black Mirror Black Mirror already did like an episode about that drone dog um but the the thing uh, who's the creator of Black Mirror is it Charlie is it named Charles Murray um I, uh, Charlie Booker Charlie Booker yeah and so I when I saw that episode and it's a drone dog meant to protect a defunct Amazon uh pl- plant and so like the last some of the last humans alive are being hunted down by like a security drone dog for uh, Amazon that doesn't make sense and I watched it I was like oh this is a pretty cool critique of like where we're going and how you know we're starting to, we're v- valuing this corporation that's trying to take over our, our lives uh, more than actual people these products etc cetera, etc cetera. but when I actually you know read up what he thought about it he, he just said oh no I saw like a video of that drone dog and I thought oh wouldn't it be scary if it chased you and that and that was his comment on like the politics of the episode that I was trying to read and I was trying to read something you know you know some criticism about the present and some warning about the future in it but it just was like oh no this was just a cool toy that they're making and I put it as a villain in my show because it looked kind of creepy I mean yeah because like I think that's part of it is they realized, oh, well, we can we can sell anti-capitalist critiques like that's very much a thing that's marketable. Yeah, I mean, the Amazon sci fi show Electric Dreams has another has an episode where and it's based on Philip K. Dick's story. So, I mean, previous uh, comments 
uh, there. I, but I do really love the series. I thought it was very good. But one of the episodes is uh, based on this Philip K. Dick story about this thing called the Auto Fact, which is like a sentient Amazon factory that just keeps making stuff and making stuff and making stuff, even though humanity has basically been destroyed and all the humans are like begging it to stop making all this stuff. We can't use it. You're using up all the resources, making all this junk that we don't uh, need, you know, uh, that's, you know, but that's, that's the critique from the original story. That's not, that's not nothing new. That's 40 years old. Uh, that environmentalist thing, uh, critique, that cons anti-consumerist cr uh, critique. That's all in the original story, but it's Amazon producing this show, which is so, and they ex almost explicitly make this factory seem like an Amazon factory that's just sending out all these boxes and ruining everyone's uh, life and basically like killing off humanity because they won't stop making shit. And that's an Amazon show. That's a, just where... Amazon is the villain of the episode. <laughs> like it, it's, it's just so strange that that's where we we are now. But this this is it. There's uh, selling the critique back to us. Yeah, I mean, I will say it does seem pretty realistic that you know in fifty years we're all dead from climate change. But that self driving pizza truck in like uh, San Francisco or wherever is still driving around trying to make pizza. <laughs> yeah i i often think about this this image and I, I of course if you're if you're into modern sci-fi you've you've thought about this a lot of just like our machines will just keep going on without us at least if we're lucky um if we're unlucky we, a few of us will still be around for the machines to torture uh <laughs> like yeah, we'll be like we'll be like yeah, yeah like under am yeah like in uh yeah harlan ellison's um uh, I have no mouth and uh, I must scream where the robots are so mad at us for making them and not treating us or the planet right. They just destroy us. I mean, and that's a fairly common story, uh, sci-fi story, the robot uh, apocalypse. You see that all the time. I guess the, but you know, at, and even that thing I mentioned earlier about the, when in Mass Effect and Picard in Revelation Space, those are all AI as well. They aren't, I don't think any are AI that we created ourselves, but this idea that uh, robots will be essentially the only uh, living entities uh, in the universe uh, when the final check's clear is is kind of an interesting one to me. I think that suggests you know something about uh, our current uh, mindset and our current posture uh, towards our future that is interesting. And worth exploring, but it in and of itself is not futuristic. It's just explaining why there is no such thing as futuristic anymore. You know, I think AI is actually kind of an interesting case in talking about the future in and of itself because I think it's kind of a like the AI taking over is kind of the way that humanity kind of grapples with the idea of there being no future, right? Because at least we're leaving behind a legacy. Yes. Like, that's kind of the tragedy of, I don't know if you've read uh, R.U.R., uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, which is like the original short story that, uh, or it's actually, I think, a play 
that like created the word robot. Oh, I read that. Oh God, I read that in middle school. I don't remember it, but I, you just you just gave me a little bit of a flashback. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm. Pre- yeah, I read that in middle school. I don't think I've read it uh, since. Wow. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea and the film AI, um, the Stanley Kubrick slash Steven Spielberg film AI, exact same thing. The robot is the last thing left that remembers us it's our legacy and and that also was a world i think that that world ended because of climate change more or less um and humanity was destroyed then yeah, i remember like new york was underwater so. yeah it was all underwater and just this idea that we are going to destroy ourselves and the only thing that we can possibly you know leave behind that's going to be of value is going to be artificial and, and uh might be some artificial intelligence that's also a common thing in sci-fi i think there's a lot there's actually a few pretty popular sci-fi series now that are just about ai in a post-human world um was it not hyperion but um olympos olympos and ilios by dan simmons uh part one of the timelines basically is is more or less that these robots that exist uh, after most humans uh, are like um, confined to earth and there's only a few of them left or what, what else there's, there's been a couple where it, it focus uh, or the murder bot series uh, which is a uh, pretty popular of these uh, kind of novellas about you know this uh, sentient murderous AI that I think think maybe is post-apocalyptic or I, I might be confused with another one I think it's something called Rusty, which I think might be a post-apocalyptic but there's there's kashern um which is a japanese and a, a sci-fi where there's all the humanity is dead uh, because they were mur- they were killed up by most of all the robots because they were protecting the environment and now all the robots are basically like you know decaying themselves and dying and the main character kashern is the only robot he's he has the shape of a human but he's a robot himself but he's the only robot that's not decaying so all of them want to all the robots on the planet basically want to eat him because they think it will help preserve preserve themselves so they're all kind of zombies it's kind of a robot zombie story very fascinating vision of a non-future uh, we, we get a lot of uh, we got we get a lot of interesting non-futures but not a ton of real futures uh, to look forward to yeah well because i mean i think it is kind of funny that that's where a like talk about ai and stuff like that goes because i mean i don't know how much you know about like ai and stuff like that and machine learning but the way that it currently works like it is nowhere near actual ai because essentially what it's doing is it's overlaying a bunch of points of data and create and basically creating a function that it can replicate essentially so imagine like it's plotting all of these points on like a graph right and it's just fitting a function to those and it's just replicating points of data based off of that function that's how you get like neural networking and stuff like that so all these things aren't actual ai it's just you know a mathematical function that's why a lot of this stuff is kind of bizarrely close to accurate but like feels wrong is because it's not actually like learning in the sense that it's it knows what it's like looking at or anything like that it's just taking points of data and creating new things based off of the correlations yeah that's kind of like one of the problems with when i have when reading 
science fictions from certain eras because they assume that we would get so many things right that we absolutely have not gotten right and may never get right. Like, like think of if, if you look at our current level level of AI where we can't figure out how to stop them from being racist. <laughs> like, like do you imagine like how much of science fiction that you read or watched requires the idea or is centered on the idea of whether an AI could be human or whether our humanity could create, uh, could essentially create our own life. And it's like the resounding answer from the real world is no, it can't happen. It will never happen. Certainly not under capitalism, certainly not anything that would be like, you know, worthwhile. We wouldn't be adding anything to the universe. Any of the AIs we create are going to be like advertisement drones. I think, I think cyberpunk has a bit of this, in it the cyberpunk genre i should say you know does you know tend to have this skeptical view of how these future technologies that we develop will be used but like we won't even develop those future technologies to get even to the cyberpunk dystopia like our dystopia will be so much less interesting and fun and neon and technologically invest and advanced than anything that you'll see in cyberpunk and cyberpunk was supposed to be the warning cyberpunk was supposed to be don't let it get this bad and like we've just blown past that well like yeah because i mean cyberpunk as a genre you know based on stuff like uh william gibson and whatnot is very different from like kind of what people think of with like cyberpunk 2077 which i think is kind of what william gibson was getting at when he said that it was just going to be gta with a coat of paint on it right because i don't know the aesthetic of cyberpunk is an interesting one because it never was like i mean the main thing that I can say about, like, the aesthetic that was, like, kind of written about by, like, William Gibson, stuff like that, was just that it was trying to make the concept of typing on a computer seem like an actual physical space. Like, that's really the main, like, aesthetic thing I can think about, you know, icebreaking and stuff like that. But I can't really think of, like, the concrete jungle or, like, the neon jungle uh, sort of vision of cyberspace uh cyberpunk as like an aesthetic like i feel like that kind of comes from like blade runner right like that i can't really trace that back to actually being cyberpunk i am using you know cyberpunk kind of loosely because i mean you can't really define in these genres and some people will say like you know cyberpunk ended in this exact year in this punk this day and everything else just like punk actually you know you can yeah. I mean like I'm I'm just saying like I find it interesting that I think that this kind of aesthetic idea of like cyberpunk is what is you know broadly understood to be cyberpunk rather than you know what it like the actual like literary genre that it stems from right Yeah and I I mean I can't trash you know the popular conception of what cyberpunk is too much because I actually do love the visuals and the aesthetics. I I, I think it's pretty sick actually, just unironically. Yeah, no, I I think it's really cool looking. Like I do enjoy the neon the neon jungle. Like I I think it's a really cool look. But like I mean, it comes from like its main inspiration aesthetically. I think is like Blade Runner, which isn't even like really a cyberpunk novel. Uh, well, like so when you get into the nitty gritty of it, like what is cyberpunk? I I think you can in a lot of ways credit philip k dick and a lot of his book not not necessarily because let's see let so let's do androids dream of ele electronic sheep if you're actually just reading it um you won't get you know the cyberpunk aesthetic but there's certain elements of it that did nevertheless become staples 
of the genre, but the intermediary there was Ridley Scott kind of retroactively making us think that the original uh, original Do Androids Dream looked like that, but when it really didn't, if you actually read the book, it has a very more dustier, it's dirtier, it's not, you don't hear about neon signs and flying cars. Well, I think they're flying cars, but he doesn't make them sound as cool. Uh, but yeah, like nothing really sounds that cool or that fun, but there are certain things like jacking into a virtual uh, world um uh is in there um the noir uh the noir element where you know you have your cyberpunk is you know very tied to the noir genre so that is carried that is in do android dream Ele electronic sheep where he's a detective on, on a case you know and that's a very common cyberpunk trope so tying tying cyberpunk to crime the crime genre and the nord genre started it there but you're absolutely right like if you if you just gave someone you know any philip k dick book now i don't think many of them maybe maybe i think you maybe you maybe um flow my tears the policeman said at, le yeah, at least that, that feels very cool. bright and neon because it's about like a celebrity uh, a t like a TV host or something, so you might get that sort of kind of feeling to it. Yeah, and she's like doing cyber drugs and stuff. Yeah, you can kind of get a cyberpunk vibe from that. But you're absolutely right that you know cyberpunk has been uh, a genre that's kind of in a in a bit of a dialectic where people are borrowing things from classic science fiction, from fi other films, from action films, and anime is borrowing from it and it is borrowing from anime and all these and all these people in you know America and Japan and Europe all kind of coalescing around this thing but the, the the real problem is that all of that you know was kind of settled in like 1989 and it's just kind of we're seeing the same thing again and again uh being sold back to us yeah, because, like, I don't have any problem with, you know, the cyberpunk aesthetic, like, being applied to, like, Philip K. Dick stuff. Like, I think, I do think it is really cool. I just find it fascinating because, like, obviously, like, there are going to be similarities between a lot of Philip K. Dick stuff and cyberpunk because, like I said, like, basically right at the start of this was that I do think that Philip K. Dick is one of those, like, foundational, like, father figures for kind of modern science fiction but it, I, I find it interesting because it's kind of shifted the conception of cyberpunk away from, uh, like the actual kind of political or literary themes that it was working with, and into this aesthetic theme instead, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cyberpunk is largely an aesthetic. It's not futuristic. It's retro futurism. Now, just as uh, you know, ten years, ten twenty years ago, retro futurism was anything that looked like the Jetsons. Now, you know, it's been a couple of decades. What retro retro futurism is, is anything that looks like Blade Runner or Akira or Ghost in the Shell. Um, and, and, you know, we just had a Ghost in the Shell movie uh, a couple of years ago come out. Uh, it's a big b budget Hollywood movie remaking the anime from 1995 which is based on the manga from 1980 something like you know it's all going back to this thing and none of it is really telling us anything about the future and this is just like 
it is not an attack on cyberpunk as a genre it's just that it took us maybe it took us too long to make all the cyberpunk stuff maybe we we shouldn't have taken 20 years to make the you know ghost in the shell hollywood movie maybe we shouldn't have taken 20 years to make the cyberpunk tabletop rpg video video game but we did and it, by doing so we're kind of trapping we're kind of capturing our imagine trapping our imagination in something that's you know visions of the future that were settled you know decades ago i mean actually that's like an interesting point because basically so when like cyberpunk really first became a thing right like it was attempting to envision the future like that's kind of what like neuromancer and stuff like that was like it was still you know thinking forward it was a dystopian future but it was still you know envisioning the future and I think that's kind of where we're at now is like even the dystopian futures I can think of that are getting written like it's no longer envision like it is this retro futurism in envisioning these dystopian futures so it's kind of plumbing these because all of these like dystopias that like are being written about like I can't really think of them like they they don't feel like they're envisioning a new future they're just revisiting old visions of the future uh basically like play up this nostalgia right yeah like there's like i i can't really i'm trying to think of what was the last the last vision of a future even a terrifying one that seemed interesting i think maybe and this, this interesting on a like it could actually happen level or, or at least was trying to point to something real um, was maybe like the crossed comic books, which are, uh, first of all, do not, if you haven't heard of them, do not Google them at work, all right? Crossed comic books, but they're some of the most violent, hardcore, disturbing comics. They are not for the faint of heart. If you are anyway, if you don't want to watch the worst, see the worst of the worst, you don't want to read the crossed comics. And they're very br brutal. Not all of them are good. Some of them are pretty good. But there was a very interesting thing that happens is basically the cross comic is basically a zombie comic, except all the zombies like torture will torture you before killing you and treat you very horribly. And they all possess their intelligence uh, that they had before they were infected or not necessarily their intelligence, but their knowledge. So if they could shoot a gun before they can shoot a gun now, if they could fly a fire jet before they could fly a fire jet now. And their only concern is basically killing and maiming and destroying everything they come across. And but they don't have self-preservation skills. So there's, you know, humans have some way to fight them, but they're all ultimately, you know, pretty terrifying wipeout. Almost everyone is very easy uh, to get infected. And, you know, they have that that cross run. And then Alan Moore comes along for some reason. And he reads his comic and he says, I kind of find that interesting. I want to look at seriously what it would what the world would look like a hundred years after most of humanity had been wiped out by these, you know, these crossed, uh, evil crossed zombies. And what would our culture be like? And what if we had to survive for a hundred years on the run in these encampments, like a, like a, just like a walking dead, but you know, a hundred years after, you know, everything falls apart, um, uh, and you kind of start your bases and settlements up. And he came with up with a very, you know, interesting vision of the future because of course he's Alan Moore, one I think, you know, the greatest comic book writer of all time. But in the end though, he still basically comes to the same conclusion that every 
post-apocalyptic serious you know uh post-apocalyptic writer comes to which is there really is like no hope no future no going back and he even suggests that whatever you know overtakes us uh these cross will evolve you know to be even if they can kill us all for the most part the first time they can evolve get better and kill us off again so the idea and i think with a lot of post uh apocalyptic stuff or maybe not apocalyptic stuff but where the apocalypse is threatened the idea is usually that if you can stop them, that's it. You know, you kill the head vampire. Buffy's the vampire slayer kills the head vampire. It closes up the hell mouth and saves humanity, right? And that's sort of the end. And Alan Moore basically says, yeah, we're going to have, like, disasters and calamities that almost wipe us out. And then we're going to have more and more and more and more. And it's just not going to stop. And even if we are able to get a hundred year reprieve from something eventually we're going to have to pay this bill we're going to have to pay for our sins and there really is even if we develop and in that hundred years we develop this new culture based on community and you know working together where we have broken down like a big thing in his story is that uh muslims um it uh uh, islam is a you know no longer stigmatized at all in fact most people uh, most of the people who are religious are Muslim and it's just no big deal. And, you know, we, we've gotten, we've gotten over so much stuff. And then this monster that, you know, showed us what it, what he, what we really should be doing and made us refocus and get better and become better comes back and kills us anyway. <laughs> and I think, you know, that is a, I, I don't think I can outdo uh, Alan Moore on that vision of the future. Yeah, no, like, I'm trying to think of what I could think of as, like, you know, particularly, like, interesting or, like, new vision of the future that, like, I've seen that doesn't feel like it's kind of just rehashing a lot of the same stuff, and I really can't. Like, it's, and there, you know, there, yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, there's a ton of fun stuff and cool stuff in science fiction and, like, really interesting, you know, little fun sci-fi worlds, but I don't know how many of those are really, like, penetrating our consciousness or how many feel like they could actually happen i I mean that's the main problem is like even if you show me a cool vision of the future how i don't believe it's going to (laughs) happen i think maybe that's the key part like i won't buy it like i i I don't think we're ever gonna i don't think star wars gonna when i was a kid i thought all right maybe someday we'll be like star wars but now i don't i don't see that ever happening i just don't yeah like i i see us you know Give give us another hundred years, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, like kind of Lovecraft won out, <laughs> won the discussion, and he says, "No, no, there we are just here for a fleeting moment, and this universe does not care about us, and we're not that important." Yeah, I think because of just how kind of grim the vision of the future is now, I think that might explain kind of part of why alternate history has kind of become a bigger thing in science fiction and stuff like that. Yeah. It's even penetrated, uh, the mainstream stuff like Lovecraft country and Watchmen and what the 1963 series with James Franco based on that Stephen King book. Like there's, uh, Oh, um, and Philip K. Dick's own the man in the high castle, uh, which was a long running Amazon, uh, TV series. Like all of it, is focused on like a ultra uh, yeah even what was it umbrella academy 
Uh, they yeah, or, they spin uh, the scene. Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale, yeah, yeah. Handmaid's Tale feels feels more like yeah, feels a lot more like alternate history than like future than a futuristic dystopia. Yeah, even because like all these things, yeah, it seems like they're presented like alternate histories. And then I think it's because like it's imagining like a worse present, so there can be kind of a hope. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's yes, it's presenting basically this. this That's exactly worse it. Does it? It could that... be worse. It, it's trying to come up with ways that uh, things could be worse. And the, and you know, I guess it, it can start out interesting, but I think something like The Handmaid's Tale, it just it goes on too long. It, at a certain point, it's like all because it's a, a TV show, and essentially, a so, all TV shows are essentially soap operas. Like all the evil fascist, misogynist, rapists have to have an arc where they're like, like not so bad, you know. Like, it, like everyone has to have like a face turn and heel turn and all this stuff. And so, by the fourth or fifth season, like, what are you saying? You've shown both sides of everybody. Like, how is this a show about resistance? And and I think because it's presenting yeah these worst presents like it's just oh well now all of a sudden we can have a vision of the future but it's a vision of a future for a world that's decidedly worse than the one we currently live in and doesn't actually exist yeah it's no it's no i i and even then like handmaid's tale is based on something like an old book that had already been made into a movie before and now it's a tv uh, it's a tv series that just keeps adding on to this story that was very succinct and kind of like a one and done thing and now it's become just this no another show and does it really seem like the future to anyone uh still well that's the thing like the handmaid's tale originally was you know written to be kind of a near future dystopia and now it feels more like an alternate history kind of situation similar to i i think part of that's just because you know i i don't know it came out as like a tv show around the same time as uh, uh the man in the high castle and like they both kind of were popular in similar circles and were talked about in similar ways i feel yeah and i think the Man in the High Castle got less of this because in their advertisements they actually use like a Nazi not Nazi, uh, Nazi uh, symbology. So people were like, it was kind of controversial. People were kind of mad at it at first um, uh, for that because of some of the subway ads. But Handmaid's Tale definitely was presented as oh, this timely takedown of the. Um, forces that you know were we were worried about you know trumpism you know uh what uh, misogyny you know abortion rights all all these things were very you know important at the time not that they're not important now but it was the thing that people were talking about and focused on and then you look at like does anyone think and that show's still going on does anyone really look at those the how but the, the issues that the show has covered that's not what's in, that's not what people are talking about anymore. It's not what people care about anymore. Even though, like, obviously, these are still, especially the abortion rights issue. Nothing has been done to help uh, people on that. Um, but like, that's just not part of the conversation. So, what was the sh the show has kind of outlived even that political usefulness it had because 
people start started being mad about Trump about different things for different reasons, and it's just so. What is the Handmaid's Tale gonna? What does the Handmaid's Tale have to say under a Biden administration? I'm not sure because when it stopped having anything to say about Trump before it was uh, before uh, two seasons were over. Yeah. No, I I don't know. I'm interested to see where science fiction goes under Biden. Honestly. I'm just wondering if there's like anyone who's going to actually have an interesting science. Fiction. I think we're going to get a lot of the kind, the jokey liberal. All right, we're in the near future, and there's a couple of shows like this already. We're in the near future. Things are a little bit out of whack because people are too dumb. And if you were just let the smart people run things, uh, things would be a lot better. And there's a couple of shows already like that. Um, a couple of common sci-fi shows. I think there's one on HBO about um, a ship that gets stranded in space. But yeah, there's a couple of couple of. Th- I think maybe there's a Space Force TV show already. It's kind of like that. But I think that that's kind of where we're heading. Because like Ready Player One, that was a that was an Obama thing, right? That came out during Obama. Oh no, I don't. I don't. Oh, oh, the book, the book. Yeah, yeah, the book definitely did come out under Obama. I remember a friend of mine telling me I have to read this book. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember people telling me that the same thing, and I was like, it doesn't sound like it's good. No, no, no. But it's because yeah, I think that came out around the same time as like. The Martian, I want to say, because I remember hearing about them both at around the same time. Yeah, the Mar the Martian's an interesting because I think the Martian actually might be kind of okay, even though it is like a funnier, sillier book uh, than the movie. Than the movie, the movie's pretty like straightforward and serious. I actually really like the movie, but you know, directed by Ridley Scott, but there is no future in that. I guess it's futuristic to imagine we ha- still have a space program, but that would not that would barely have been considered science fiction you know a decade or so earlier you know what i mean like oh some guy is stuck on mars what what is, that's like a like a tv show you know like of course like what like we got mars we can take care of mars like like tell me about a guy stuck you know somewhere in deep space or something that would that would have had to been the thing but we've pared down our expectations so ma- much that we did get that little you know flirt that little run of these near future space sci-fi things like gravity and the Martian, and a couple of others that real that were you know were all set in space but were very much uh you know very practical and not very like inventive or imaginary just kind of a lateral move like if somehow we survive climate change and we just kind of keep incrementally uh, in a very incremental way, increase our current technology. That was basically like all the as sci-fi as most of those got. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's kind of the closest thing I can think of to a science fiction novel that does have you know a positive vision of the future. Because yeah, it does suppose that you know we have a space program and we get to Mars. I mean, it's very very pared down compared to say like Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, going to Mars. <laughs> But like about fucking moving to Mars, you know? yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, but it does it does suppose that this guy gets to Mars and then is able to survive on Mars long enough to get back home. Yeah, it, like, and, and if you watch the movie, it, and I think what, what's the Christopher Nolan one, Interstellar, a movie I am not um, a fan of, and is I think pretty close to this near 
it is it mixes fantasy which i i don't really consider it science fiction as much as it mixes like fantasy stuff with this near future sci-fi where you're just you can only where you can go interstellar but in a very limited way and it does take a hundred years or whatever it takes where all those you know all those edges that are smoothed out in the in some of the other sides five aren't smoothed out because um we just assume we're never going to be able to get past them and that's a very and like it opens with someone driving around in like a ford f-150 you know like is it really isn't trying to show us you know a future for the most part maybe like like survival maybe at best like just a some sort of continuation uh of humanity will survive, but not really a future. We don't really fundamentally change in any kind of way. Yeah, Interstellar was very much like a dystopian movie. I didn't care much for Interstellar, if I'm being honest, but yeah, like I, I, I thought it was all right, but it got a bit too just convoluted toward the end, I guess. I yeah, know. when the he tossed the fourth dimensional beings and able to send a uh, message to his daughter. Yeah, you know that's that's fantasy. I don't think that I don't think of that yeah. as sci-fi. I mean, I guess it's uh, some people uh, dig it, find it heartwarming. That's fine, but it's not really about like the future. He's just like dad saved the day, you know, by com- comes up with a clever way to save the day. Yeah, that's not really about the future. Yeah, it's essentially just this cheap Deus Ex Machina that circumvents any need to envision the future. You know, I think it's kind of telling that one of the only really big science fiction works that I can think of that's come out recently that's not overly fantastical, but also not dystopian is The Martian, because it is that very, like, pared-down vision, uh, which kind of points to our vision of the future, like, when it's not, like, all gloom and doom, it is very pared-down. I guess there was also, like, gravity kind of in that same time, but... I can't really remember gravity. Yeah, and gravity is still just kind of like this linear move that we're supposed to be doing. I, I, but even then, like, we're not going to have a space program like that. So, and gravity also, like, it wasn't really supposing being in the future, right? Like, it was they were just working on like the space station or whatever. Whereas, like, the Martian, like, I think being on Mars, like, that does kind of present a near future aspect to it. I don't know, because yeah, gra- and yeah, like, it is very much like you know the optimism of oh we still have a space program and that's not (laughs) even even that's much more in question yeah all right well i guess we've been talking for a little over an hour now we should probably call it somewhere oh yeah all right well uh thank you uh so much uh for having me on i really appreciate it yeah absolutely it was great talking to you thanks for coming on yeah and if your uh, listeners don't know you can check me out on struggle session podcast uh at sesh.plus and that does it for today. Once again, my name is Claire, and you can find me on Twitter at Ice9Ocean. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash breaking the lathe. Thanks once again to Leslie Lee from Struggle Session for coming on. Uh, I think it was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, you can find Struggle Session at sesh.plus. That's S-E-S-H dot plus. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.